Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 662 for the 29th of September, 2019. This week, you know the hard drive in your computer will fail someday. So you've been making regular backups. But what if you can't restore files from the backup when disaster strikes? Preparing for recovery is the step that's all too easy to miss. In short circuits, suddenly your computer starts acting like it's full of congealed tarballs. Who's to blame? Sometimes it's not malware or Microsoft. Every computer user who does anything on the internet is using Linux, so why is Linux installed on so few home computers? And in spare parts, only on the website, Exposure Software, previously known as Alien Skin, has just released Exposure X5. I'll have a full review in a couple of weeks, but let's take a quick first look. If you've ever wanted a jukebox that plays 45 RPM records, you can now buy one, but only if you have about $10,000 lying around free. And 20 years ago, the top search engines were Yahoo and AltaVista, but a newcomer had arrived and was building a reputation for itself. If you've dealt with my frequent yammering about the need for backup, you probably have already created a backup for your computer. What happens, though, when you actually need the backup? Most backup applications have a utility that creates rescue media, either an optical disk or a thumb drive. Either can then be used to boot the computer and begin the recovery process when disaster strikes. Note I say when, not if. The process of creating rescue media takes just a few minutes, but it's an easy process to skip initially and plan to take care of later. It is something that should not be postponed, and it's also something that should be repeated whenever the backup system is updated to a new version. Data can be backed up to cloud-based systems such as CrashPlan, Carbonite, or Acronis True Image if you choose the higher-priced online option. Backing up the operating system or making a disk image requires an application that's intended for those kinds of backups. Online systems such as CrashPlan and Carbonite don't create a disk image. Because I don't trust single backups, I keep two copies of a boot drive image updated on Wednesdays and Sundays, and I keep them on two different disks. These disk drives are stored in the same building as the boot drive, which means they're not really backups. I say that because anything that destroys the computer will probably also destroy both of the drives with the images. The boot drive, though, is the least important location for backup, though. Yes, replacing the hard drive and reinstalling both the operating system and all the applications and then updating all the settings would be a nuisance. But there's nothing on the boot drive that can't easily be replaced, or reasonably easily anyway. The data drives are a different story, so they're backed up to CrashPlan, an online service. CrashPlan stopped working just before Memorial Day, though, and wasn't working again for nine days. More than 100 new digital images came off the camera in that week and a half, and literally hundreds of other files were updated during the period. 
Although losing Crash Plan was an annoyance, I wasn't overly concerned because of other backup components. Files that didn't go to Crash Plan were at least backed up every few hours to a local network drive and to my weekly Wednesday full backup. But the main question here is what happens when something goes entirely off the rails and you can't boot the computer? That's when you need rescue media. Because most computers no longer have optical drives, creating a bootable thumb drive is usually the best option. Many backup applications have a built-in utility that makes creation easy. I'll be demonstrating with a Cronus TrueImage 2019, which is last year's version, but you'll find similar functions in other applications. You'll need to start with an empty thumb drive or one that contains files you don't need. The drive will need to be formatted either as FAT16 or FAT32, and it doesn't need to be very large. Literally, the smallest device you can buy will be sufficient, unless you want to add other utility programs to the thumb drive after the emergency boot files have been written to it. So a 16-gigabyte thumb drive should be more than adequate, even if you want to add a lot of utilities to the drive. The emergency media will be based either on WinPE, that's the pre-installation environment, or WinRE, the recovery environment. The primary difference is that WinPE loads network drivers and offers a more Windows-like command line environment, while Windows RE offers more and better boot management, disk management, and recovery tools. Acronis explains that TrueImage 2019 just uses files from the user's system to create the WinRE-based media. WinRE-based media can be used only on the computer where it was created or on a computer with the same operating system and hardware. Creating emergency media is important, and it takes only a few minutes. Start by selecting the option that will probably be on the application's Tools menu to create emergency or rescue media. You'll probably be offered standard and advanced options, or terms similar to that. The basic, default, automatic, or simple option is the right choice for most people. Then plug in the thumb drive that you plan to use and confirm its name and drive letter. In the example you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website, the thumb drive has been mounted as Drive K. Make sure the thumb drive is ready for use by formatting it as either FAT16 or FAT32 and giving it a name that identifies it as a rescue drive. The backup application will ask you to identify the disk you want to use. Be careful when you select the drive. Selecting the wrong drive here could result in a substantial data loss, which is the exact opposite of your objective. Double or even triple check the setting as a good safety measure. Many years ago, many, many years ago, I formatted the wrong drive during routine maintenance. Well, fortunately, I had a backup. The process should end with some sort of success message, but then what? Well, then you should test it, and unfortunately, this is a step that's often omitted. Before starting the test process, be aware that a cordless keyboard and mouse may not work when you boot to the recovery media. If you have older devices with cords, keep them nearby. If your computer is not set up to look first for the media type that you've used for recovery files, you need to edit the system's BIOS settings. The computer may display information about how to open the BIOS settings during the boot process. If not, you'll need to check documentation that came with the computer or visit the manufacturer's website. Then set the boot order so that your recovery media will be checked first and the hard drive will be checked second. There's no need to change this setting back to the original configuration following the test. 
If media is present when the computer boots, it will use the recovery media. If not, the boot will continue to the hard drive. The recovery media should display an interface with various options. These vary, but they may include some system utilities in addition to the backup application's restore process. At that point, you'll know that the recovery media can boot the computer. Testing an image backup would require an additional hard drive that contains no important information so that it can serve as a target for the image. Testing a files and folders type backup is a lot easier. Just select a few files to restore, then write them to a new location. When the files have been restored, compare them to the originals, and if there are no differences, the process is complete and you're done. In short circuits, Windows computers can slow down over time, but sometimes a computer that's working fine one day will appear to be full of solidified tar balls the next day. A friend in California told me about a serious system slowdown that rendered his system nearly unusable, and even though he provided the answer in his question, it took me several days to figure out what the problem was. Jim, and I'm going to call him Jim because, well, because that's his name. Jim reported that his machine had started to slow on Friday, and the condition worsened over the weekend. By Tuesday, the computer's lock screen was slow to open the password dialog box. He said the computer seemed slowest when responding to commands that required hard disk access. The display tended to freeze even when he was just typing an email. Malwarebytes, he said, says I am free of naughtyware. So, I went online with him and checked the usual suspects. Disk space was limited, but not so much that it would create a performance problem. The disk manager reported that all disks were healthy, but the resource monitor suggested excessive disk access with Process ID 4 system. Well, unfortunately, Process ID 4 system is used by a vast number of other processes, so knowing that PID 4 is consuming a lot of disk resources is like trying to identify an individual water molecule by examining a glass full of water. PID 4 was busy. Well, of course it was. It's always busy, and it's almost always the primary user of disk resources. So I tried a couple of command line processes run as administrator. System file checker run with the scan now option is a tool for Microsoft to identify problems with system files. Then I tried the deployment image servicing and management module. It's a command line tool that's typically used to mount and service Windows images before deployment. The Deployment Image Servicing Management Module is also used to repair an existing installation. There are three switches that are generally used in order. Check Health determines whether any repairs are needed. Scan Health is an advanced version of Check Health. And Restore Health, which actually runs Check Health and then makes the necessary repairs. Generally, it's okay to skip Check Health and Scan Health, and that's what I did. The system's performance improved. In fact, it improved enough that we both thought the problem had been resolved. Nothing is ever that easy, though. The next day, the login process on Jim's computer was slow, programs were sluggish, and File Explorer opened slowly. In other words, the problem had not been solved. 
We made arrangements for another online session the following day, but in the meantime I had some suggestions for him. Try safe mode and see if the problem persists, I suggested. Use a restore point to move the system back in time to a point before the problem began. Or try creating a new account on the computer and see if it has the same problems. I also made a list of tasks for our next online session. Which and how many programs start with Windows. See if changing the visual effects to best performance helps. Check apps and features to see if any unexpected applications have been installed. Review which protective applications are in use and confirm that the Windows version is current. That would be 1903, build 18362.356 or later. But then I needed to use my tablet computer for something. Even though the Surface Pro 4 has an Intel i7 processor and 16 gigabytes of RAM, sometimes it is unusually slow. Such was the case and that turned out to be my second clue. Now, you may remember that I said Jim had provided the answer to the problem in his question, but I needed this second clue to make sense of it. My primary computer is also slow, sometimes, but not unusually or unacceptably slow. Is there something, I wondered, that all three computers have in common? Well, in fact, there is. Malware bytes. In December 2016, version 3 was released, and since that time there have been complaints about computers being slow when Malwarebytes is running. The problem has a strange ebb and flow. In January 2018, a defective update caused a serious problem for most users that was resolved. The solution to that problem was to turn off web protection features. Since then, other problems have required that certain other features be disabled, because I use the tablet only occasionally, it was a candidate for a potential solution. I uninstalled Malwarebytes and installed the free version of AVG Antivirus instead. The tablet once again booted quickly, no longer had any serious usability issues. I reported this to Jim and asked him to replicate on his computer what I had done on the tablet. In the meantime, I removed Malwarebytes from my primary computer and installed AVG Free there also. The difference in performance was a lot less dramatic but still noticeable. Jim reported that his computer was once again running normally and therefore we didn't have to try any of the other tasks on my follow-up list. So, if a computer you have is running slow and the computer has Malwarebytes 3 installed, it might be worth turning the application off to see if that resolves the problem. I have been a user of Malwarebytes for many years. Removing it makes me sad, but a protective application that renders the computer unusable really isn't doing me any favors. There's a good chance that you use Linux every day, even if you don't know it. Most computers that run the internet run Linux. The TechBiter website host computer is a Linux device. There's a Linux computer on my desk, too, even though I rarely use it. There is no good reason for most people to avoid Linux other than inertia. Linux reminds me of Esperanto, a language created in the late 1800s by L. L. Zamenhof. His objective was to create an easy, flexible language that could be used as a second language worldwide. Several hundred thousand people speak Esperanto today, 
but it hasn't exactly seen widespread success. So it is with Linux. Linux has a lot of advantages. It's inexpensive. In fact, it's free. Hundreds of applications for common computer tasks run on Linux, and it updates itself and all of its applications automatically. But it also has an unfounded reputation for being hard to use, doesn't always work properly with hardware designed for Windows or the Mac OS, and it's available in hundreds, literally hundreds, of variants. That third item might actually be the killer. Windows is Windows. Mac OS is Mac OS. But if you decide you want to try Linux, you have to figure out which one. Debian is one of the main distros, but there are lots of variants. Another primary distro is Fedora, and many variants have been derived from it. Slackware and Red Hat distros each have dozens of variants. You'll see a Wikipedia image on the TechBiter Worldwide website. It shows just a small part of the Debian family tree. How do you decide with all those choices? By the way, if you want to see the family tree for all the distros, check out Wikipedia. There's a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. You look at that image, and you'll quickly realize there are literally hundreds of options. The current guess is around 285. The list is shrinking, though. So let me go out onto a limb here, and it's a strong limb. If you want to give Linux a try, start with Linux Mint. Check it out on the TechBiter Worldwide website. There's a link there. Doing that will limit your choice to just three options, Cinnamon, Mate, and XFCE. If you want to cut that to just one, try the most popular of the three, Cinnamon. Linux is Linux, but Linux alone is useless because it's just the operating system kernel. To be a functional operating system, Linux needs the additional components provided by the many distros. I've used Ubuntu on several computers over the years, but switched to Mint's Cinnamon variant. Mint and Ubuntu, another very popular distro, are based on Debian. Now, more accurately, Mint is based on Ubuntu, which is based on Debian. Mint is considered to be the primary competitor for Ubuntu, and it's a good option for new users because it was designed to be easy for new users to set up. But don't expect to run Microsoft's Office Suite or any other Windows-only or Mac OS-only applications. That's the other issue that can be a sticking point. I use a lot of applications that don't have Linux versions. Most people can get along without Microsoft Office, as could I. But that's not the case for those of us who depend on Adobe applications and other programs that really can't be used on a Linux system. Now, in fact, most Windows applications can run on a Linux system under Wine. Back in the day, Wine was an acronym for Wine is not an emulator. Linux developers really like to do things recursively. Wine is a compatibility layer that can run Windows applications on several POSIX-compliant operating systems. POSIX is an acronym for Portable Operating System Interface, and it is an IEEE standard designed to allow cross-system portability. It works this way. Wine translates Windows application program interface calls into POSIX calls on the fly so that the application thinks it's running on a Windows system. The trouble with Wine, from my perspective, is that it's just one more thing to go wrong. I have enough trouble getting Windows applications to run properly on Windows, and adding another layer of complexity just doesn't seem prudent. 
But what about people who don't need Windows-only or Mac OS-only applications? In that case, Linux is a great choice. The three primary applications most people need are email, office programs, and web browsers. Email? Thunderbird and Kmail are the two most common choices on Linux, but there are more options. In fact, more than Windows users have. How about a web browser? Chrome, Chromium, Firefox, Opera, and many others are all there on Linux. Office suites? There's LibreOffice, OpenOffice, and a dozen or so others that see much less use. Text editors? There's another thing that people need from time to time. Sublime, Atom, Vim, and a bunch of others are available. In fact, you'll find Linux analogs for nearly every Windows or Mac OS application. While there is nothing that matches the scope of Adobe applications on Linux, there is no shortage of applications that can be used to edit various kinds of media, from GIMP for photographs, Audacity for audio files, several video editors, and some typesetting and publishing applications. More than enough for home and small office users. There is only one version of spare parts, and you'll find it in the usual place, on the website. This week, Exposure Software, known as Alien Skin until recently, has just released Exposure X5. I'll have a full review in a couple of weeks, but let's take a quick first look now. If you've ever wanted a jukebox that plays 45 RPM records, you can buy one, but only if you have $10,000 or so lying around. And 20 years ago, the top search engines were Yahoo and AltaVista, but a newcomer had arrived and was building a reputation for itself. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.